0: Zach City, bitch. OMG, hi. Thank you so much for tuning into the Salve podcast. I'm so excited to be here nattering with you today. Um, This is my favorite kind of conversation where I get to talk and I don't have to listen. So this is the ideal medium for me. I would like to thank all of my wonderful Sylvester's for putting up with my Taylor Swift nonsense from last week. I had to get it out. I'm still listening to Folklore. Obviously, my top picks at the moment are Illicit Affairs and Seven, which I think are the two gayest songs on the album. So that's very fitting for me. There are lots of things on the agenda today. I want to discuss the BBC slash HBO show, I May Destroy You, and how that pertains to cancel culture, which is something that has been in the headlines a lot very recently. I think I might have some surprising takes for you all. And I would also like to touch a little bit on radical kindness or radical love. I mean, the idea fluctuates depending on the theorists that you're reading, but I would like to discuss that a little bit as an alternative mode of thinking to the hyper woke culture that is beginning to disturb me. As always, if you have not subscribed to Salve, please do so that you continue to receive my emails. And if you're not receiving my emails, check your spam and drag Salve from that stupid little promotions tab into your primary inbox, or write a response to this email to ensure that you keep getting mail. I will be reading an excerpt from my memoir at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that if you're interested. It will be a continuation of the excerpt that I read in the first podcast, so if you want to listen to that first to refamiliarize familiarize yourself with what I'm banging on about, that might be a good idea. Um, I wanted to do a little check-in and let you all know how I've been doing, what I've been up to. As we all know, due to the uh, current pandemic that is gripping the world in a very severe chokehold, I am staying in Singapore for a lot longer than I anticipated I would be, and one of the ways that I am dealing with that impending trauma is by rearranging my space. So I've lived in this room for many, many years, and it has a lot of things that are no longer relevant to my life in it, um, including an extensive collection of Taylor Swift memorabilia that I am finding very hard to part with, but I know needs to go in order for me to transition from being a Swifty into being a human. So that needs to go. But I have been repurposing old furniture because I'm kind of trying to stay away from buying stuff. You know, I'm on my anti-capitalism bullshit. So I'm really trying to make do with what I have and repurpose things. So I bought this chalk paint, which is really cool. And I've been painting everything that is blue in my room, which is a lot of things because I was obsessed with that color, uh, either to like a vintage white or a pink. So I'm going for like a mid-century modern pink, white, hints of green maybe a few maroons in there somewhere situation I will definitely post on my Instagram an update when it's all finished but I am having a lot of fun getting it together and here is where I ask for your help I am looking to get some prints for my room ideally from a small artist or a small business owner and I would like to have your recommendations on what looks good so I'm thinking pastels I'm thinking pinks I could do some muted yellows If you have any ideas, please head over to my Instagram at ZachCityBish and drop me with some recommendations. I have also discovered the joy of having fake plants. Um, I don't trust myself to keep a real plant alive, and also my mom has this weird thing about having live plants in the house in Singapore. She thinks it's dirty, it'll attract bugs, blah, 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 blah. So fun to live with your parents after living alone for many years. Um, but yeah, so I've invested in some fake plants that look kind of real, and they're doing the trick for me. I think my mind has subconsciously decided that they are living. I accidentally watered one of them the other day, so that's something that's been happening. I also finally finished my watercolor book, for sure, for my grandmother, which I mentioned in my piece Grief Observed. And she received it via DHL yesterday, she's very pleased with it, and in response she sent me a book on Bob Ross oil paintings which I think is not helpful for me, given that I am using watercolor. So if anybody would like a very big catalog of Bob Ross oil painting tutorials, please let me know. I will ship it to you at your cost at my convenience. But on the real, in the Dear Salve column that I did a couple of months ago, I had a question about how to keep things fresh when you're feeling stagnated. And for me, currently, that answer has been to shift things around, make some space. I've been saging my room like a little witch. It's been very enjoyable for me. And it has definitely helped to distract me from the kind of caged animal feeling that I think we're all starting to realize as the coronavirus extends. A show that I would like to recommend you this week as a solve for your sorrow is I May Destroy You, which is written, produced, directed, and starred in by Michaela Coel. I May Destroy You follows Arabella, who is a Twitter famous writer who has just received a book deal, who's kind of struggling with writer's block to finish her second book. She's got a lot of pressure from her publishers, and in the first episode we see that she experiences a date rape, and the way that that assault plays out and manifests in her subconscious is really artfully and beautifully written and depicted throughout the entire show. It's a multifaceted and deeply layered program, and it really illuminates the strength of Black familial sisterhood and what it means to take care of your friends when they're in distressing situations. I think it touches on chosen family, that concept, a lot. But most impressively, I think it deals with how sexual assault kind of burrows in your subconscious and messes with your sanity over time. Arabella is an intricate and complex protagonist. She is often unreliable in being able to predict what her reactions to situations are going to be. And Michaela has this beautiful uh, facial expression that she delivers as Arabella that is both unnerving, deeply uncomfortable, and completely unmissable. So Arabella has her drink spiked at a club and is brutally raped. And as she's trying to wade through the circumstance and recall what exactly happened to her, trying to piece together who did it who was complicit of her friends that were there and what exactly happened because her memory is hazy, obviously. She enters into a relationship with a ghostwriter who is employed to help her finish her book. That relationship and dynamic was really fascinating to me because they do enter into a consensual sexual relationship. Although Arabella is deeply scarred by what has just happened to her, she seemingly enters this situation with ease and pleasure, and he has sex with her without a condom, even though he tells her that he's going to put it on, he takes it off in the middle of intercourse and Arabella doesn't know and she learns about it the night that it happens and doesn't seem too disturbed by it. I'm watering this down a lot because it's extremely complex and very difficult to describe, so I highly recommend that you check out the show to get the full context, but Arabella joins this sexual assault survivor group that has very strong rhetoric about cancelling abusers and wanting abusers to face consequences, particularly physical consequences like pain or suffering. Arabella is informed by the members of the support group that what happened to her with The ghostwriter was actually considered legally rape in the UK. So she's going to a reading organized by their publisher, and the ghostwriter and her are both due to give a speech. And when it comes time to give her speech and read an excerpt of her book, she gets up and publicly calls him a rapist and reveals what he did to her. Her friend films it and puts it on the internet, and thus he is publicly cancelled. What's very fascinating about this series is that he kind of comes back as a character towards the end of the series to apologize and help her finish writing her book. And Arabella seems to take him in with hesitation at first, but clearly does not feel unsafe with him as she invites him back to her house to help him finish the book. And she goes through this whole process of allowing him to help her organize and restructure her writing. Before Arabella gives her speech, she gets caught up in becoming an online activist. She's glued to her phone. She's disconnected from her friends. Her friends are constantly commenting on the fact that she seems not to be present. She's very Rose McGowan-esque in her social media, um, staunchly advocating for survivors and doxing rapists and abusers on her Twitter page. The ghostwriter did not face many real life consequences outside of being publicly shamed. He was embarrassed and his career was kind of over in that sense, but he was allowed by the publishing house to publish his book under a pseudonym and obviously still gains critical and commercial success, albeit not to his actual name what I thought was so interesting here is how Michaela Coel wrote this character and how this character processes the fact that the public cancellation didn't really have the desired outcome that she anticipated at the end of the series uh, when she, figures out exactly who it was that date raped her in the first place, there are three different scenarios that are depicted. So three different ways that things could have ended up. One involves killing her rapist, the other involves hearing about his sexual abuse and feeling sorry for him, and another involves her doing nothing at all. And it's not quite clear which one was the true scenario or what really happened. The whole point is supposed to be that it illuminates the ambiguity of retribution and justice and vigilanteism and cancel culture, ultimately, because despite the fact that Arabella got her fuck you moment and everybody piled on and hated this person ultimately the consequences didn't impede his life to the extent to which she would have liked which kind of begs the question of what do we expect to come of these scenarios what do we expect to happen once we cancel someone because they can't cease to exist the barometers on what seems to be acceptable or unacceptable behavior or something deserving of cancellation seems to be shifting in a very murky way and i think that's due to the kind of kangaroo court and mob mentality that we are experiencing on social media it seems to come from a very specific group of people who have a vested interest in watching other people suffer and i'm not saying that these actions are not justified in certain circumstances. I mean, we look at someone like Harvey Weinstein, and I personally believe that he got every little bit that he deserved, but I think there's a difference between a cancellation and natural consequences. Natural consequences are what happens to someone who does something wrong, it's that karmic retribution that comes back, or a legal justification that says that what this person did was wrong. Cancelling is something else to me, it's like asking a person to drop off the face of the earth, or to stop being themselves entirely for the benefit of a greater good that is unclear, because we're not sure exactly what we want to happen post-cancelling cancellation. Because as we know, as I've said already, it's not possible for people to just cease to exist. The rhetoric that is deployed when Twitter users are imploring companies to cancel their employees or other people they are affiliated with always seems to come from a good place. In theory, it is a good idea to hold people accountable for their actions. But I think that The people who are calling for this cancellation are not particularly vested in advancing a cause or encouraging growth or giving opportunities to learn. They simply want someone to suffer. And whether or not that's deserved, I mean, you can go back and forth on a case-by-case basis, but I think that this is not the productive way to have conversation. It's almost as if the element of discourse has been totally erased in the cancel culture rhetoric. It's an absolute, I'm right, you are wrong, this has to happen, or else I will insert whatever things have been done to try and cancel someone. JK Rowling recently, along with a bunch of other authors, penned a letter about cancel culture and made some very valid points about how it's stifling free speech and limiting discourse, and I have to agree. I don't agree with what JK Rowling said about trans women, I don't agree with her gender essentialism, but that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be able to say what she thinks. I don't agree that that's hate speech. Freedom of speech is such a difficult topic to discuss because I think that you can't agree that you are for freedom of speech and then impose limitations based on your own moral value. Unfortunately, freedom of speech is supposed to be a kind of absolute moralism that allows you to say whatever you want due to the merit of it being free. So to that extent, I would say let's abandon the free speech argument because obviously it doesn't work and there need to be parameters on what's socially and publicly acceptable to say. But we also have to be aware that there are going to be differences and fluctuations Situations in that. And I really think that the definition of hate speech or threat or violent language needs to be clearer. But how can it be if we can't come to a moral consensus on what's right or what's wrong? It's a circular argument that kind of ends back up in the same space that we started, which is that free speech either does or doesn't exist. This is where I want to discuss empathy and the act of radical kindness or love. In a profile for Variety, Michaela Coel kind of expands on this thought as she discusses how she deals with racists in her day-to-day life or how she calls for change on actions that might have been termed racist or microaggressive. She's learned to alter her language so as not to inflame before she is able to make her point in a clear and concise way that actually brings about change instead of inciting semantic arguments. So I'd like to read you a little excerpt from this interview to give you some context on how I related I May Destroy You to the cancel culture freedom of speech argument. I learned that when I am traumatized, I make a line and I say dangerous or safe. Sometimes when you stay in that mode too long, the line becomes good or bad, nice or evil, angel or devil, not me or me, friends or enemies. But the line is not real. I'm not saying remove the line. But if we understand that it isn't real, it may enable us to look at things that we are calling over there differently. And when you acknowledge it and look at it, that enemy, that evil, that bad thing, the more you learn how to master it and temper it. She goes on to question... How do you begin to vanquish this cancer called white supremacy that infects people and eats their souls? How do you engage with half humans, particularly the ones in government and the police and production companies, ask them questions, and then gently, sometimes angrily, insist on your own humanity? How do you punch a cloud? The macro and the structural overwhelm me. I tend to zero in on individual relationships. A part of me yearns to give people their right to life, to live it, to not have barriers, to not marginalize, to dare to let go of your power and see what happens. The act of empathy is really about my own well-being it is about how i have moved forward as an artist and a person this makes me feel better it's about how you can feel better in a system that is fucked but you need to sleep well daring to empathize daring to help other people as well as being helped it will do you good it's about you My dear Sylvesters, you are a very smart group of people, so I'm sure you're wondering, do I have to empathize with racists? And to that I say yes and no. I mean, we have to recognize and understand the humanity in each human being. That's the hard part of this kind of practice, is that you have to allow and permit someone their humanity, but deny or disagree with their actions or their words. This is a tough one to enact in your real life, but I think that I'm going to try and practice it a little bit and try and see the humanity and the people that I don't agree with or that I believe are providing obstacles towards something that I believe in. I think reshifting our energy and our focus away from trying to cancel people towards uplifting and building communities with the people who we believe deserve a space in the spotlight or deserve airtime or whatever it is that you're fighting for is probably a more productive way to go about the true meaning behind cancel culture which is justice and retribution i suppose and after that long sermon i will be inserting a 20 second clip of a single dropped by my very good friend sherry who is part of a musical duo in singapore called slain they have just put out a banger called treat me like somebody which you can find on all streaming services and once that is over we will return to some salves for your sorrows and my memoir excerpt Wonderful. I am so impressed by how talented all of my friends are at all times. I would like to recommend, as a sell for your sorrow, three Netflix shows that I have been enjoying this week. So the first one is Love on the Spectrum, which is a reality TV show about dating with autism. And I find this piece really interesting because I don't feel like there is a mocking aspect to it. I could be totally wrong. Please alert me if I'm reading this incorrectly and it is in fact highly offensive, but it seems like a very humane and honest portrayal of finding love under any circumstance because we all know that that is hard at the best of times. The second show that I would like to recommend to everyone is a little on the trashier side. It's called Skin Decision Before and After and if you're into skincare and also reality tv bodily transformations this will be great for you it's always good to see people's motivations behind getting filler or sort of like fraxel lasers it'll definitely make you want to get a few procedures but i would like to remind you that they are not necessary another series i enjoyed on netflix is called please like me and it's about a socially awkward gay guy who suddenly discovers that he's gay one day breaks up with his girlfriend and adventures into the often salacious world of gay dating and gay sex so it's very entertaining it's very well written and it's a super easy watch so i recommend that if you're looking to have something on as kind of stimulating background noise For reading recommendations or selves for your sorrows this week, I recommend Against Interpretation by Susan Sontag, which is a very cringe and expected recommendation from me, but I feel like for anyone that enjoys consuming media the way that I do, it is a very seminal text in terms of informing the way that you interpret or do not interpret and critique all forms of art. I found it very helpful specifically as a writer who is often in workshop critiquing other people's work. I'd also like to recommend a beautiful and lyrical essay from the Boiler Journal by emerging writer Andrea B. It's called Petals, and it is about breaking up with someone after receiving an std from them i mean there's no beautiful way to say that but somehow this writer has managed to make a wonderful piece of art out of the experience so i will leave that linked below and you can check it out it's a very quick easy read in the vein of my interior design obsession and fervent support of small businesses i would like to recommend an instagram vintage shop called homesick housewares there's a period in between those two words in their handle that is based in south carolina they ship small items internationally and not big items items, much to my dismay. Beautifully curated vintage pieces, ceramics, tables, lamps, chairs, you know the works, in muted and pastel colors to bring some quiet chaos to your feed now we have arrived at my favorite part of the podcast where i get to read you a snippet from my work in progress my memoir this piece or this passage directly follows the one that i read last week you can go and listen to it if you would like to familiarize yourself but if you are not feeling like doing that it was about going to the wet market in a place called holland village where i picked out two terrapins to take home as a child any names you'll hear have obviously been changed for privacy on Sunday, I woke to the rising sun and watched the terrapins open their mouths like letterboxes. The morning light turned the marble floors amber, and I took my new companion swimming. One turtle got stuck in the chlorine filter and became distressed. I prodded the mechanism for a while, then explained to him that nothing could be done. He had gotten himself into a spot of bother. I played Ariel with the other one who could not dive to the bottom or glue his feet together to create a mermaid's tail. Good amphibian talent was hard to find i sunned myself on the wooden deck which gave me splinters and let the victorious terrapin roam my body i sang tomorrow from annie at the top of my lungs our house was on a street corner lined high with vegetation so onlookers couldn't spy in a round of applause came from passers-by beyond the trees as i finished my tune we lived on university road in the middle of bukit Tima, a popular expatriate area close to international schools and a stone's throw from holland village Our house was a colonial bungalow, colloquially called a black and white, with dark timber beams and whitewashed walls. The bungalows are peculiar-looking, a hodgepodge of Malay art deco and Victorian aesthetics built at the turn of the 20th century. Erected before the advent of air conditioning, the houses are cooled by marble floors and sprawling verandas. The dwellings closest to mangrove swamps were built on stilts black and white houses are grandiose or run-down and rather ordinary it is coveted social currency to live in any kind of black and white though the extravagant units in private estates with servant quarters and tennis courts carried the poisonous waft of a bygone superiority one of my school friends luella lived in one of these palatial black and whites at the top of a winding hill behind holland village we had cucumber sandwiches and elderflower cordial on the squash court until a monitor lizard commandeered the space there was a zip line adjacent to the walkway between the servant quarters and the main house luella called in a flying fox her mother rescued litters of street kittens and nursed them after school we flew on the fox with cats in our pockets i took one home and named him garbo my parents were unamused by the minuscule bottles of kitten formula our black and white sat on the lowest rung of desire it was old and poorly maintained and the frame of the house was much smaller than luella's no servants quarters just the one structure it had a character and grit that the palatial bungalows did not the land was medium-sized with a canopy of vegetation bearing all kinds of fruit there was a long paved driveway from university road into the house littered with eggshell colored frangipani blossoms that fell from the oldest tree deemed heritage buildings the government owns all colonial bungalows on the island maintenance is done at the discretion of appointed property managers we lived with broken locks haphazard air conditioning frequent power cuts and temperamental plumbing our house crumbled with us inside and we were not allowed to fix it renters must not significantly alter any part of the house and are expected to leave the interior exactly as they found it electrical outlets fans air conditioning swimming pools fridges and shelving units must be stripped for the move out i dreaded the day we would leave i finger painted dripping blood in my bedroom because i thought if the walls are wrecked we can stay nothing in singapore was permanent not even the doorknobs At noon, my mother came down from her bedroom with last night's mascara smudged on her temples. You'll catch Salmonella if you carry on like that. Put him back in the tank. She brought a towel and sent me inside for ginger beer and ketchup on toast. I heard the terrapin food rustling, and my mother summoned me. Where's the other one? I told her that he had made an unwise decision to swim into the chlorine filter. So you just left it there? She opened the hatch to the chlorine filter, and the spare to the air floated belly up. His gaping mouth was still and shut. I counted the spots on the shell's undercarriage and wondered what his insides looked like. She sighed, dig a hole under the rambutan tree and bury it. As I dug, I wondered why our rambutan were rotten. I pried open a sharp prize every other week and balked at the rancid stench, the crawling ants, the sickly decay. Death was evergreen in the tropics. I saw monitor lizards in rigor mortis from the bus to school. The angsana trees had lame branches sewn off daily. I expected these departures, respected them as mortal markings of time in the absence of seasonality. There are two climates to note in Singapore, wet and dry. The heat at the beginning of the year brings mating season to the monitor lizards, sending the males into a frenzy, increasing roadkill victims. Dry. The angsana trees were heavy with rain-logged boughs in the latter part of the year, so the branches sagged and collapsed on the motorways if they were not pruned. Wet. Still, I yearned for traditional marks of time. With Gilmore Girls on the television, I marveled at the shifting hues of autumn foliage and stars hollow, the rusted red, orange, and yellow. I imagined the crunch of a crisp leaf underfoot on the sidewalk. The leaves in Singapore practically turned to mulch before they hit the ground. We traveled west only in the summer, staying tropical for the rest of the year. I wondered how quickly a a snowflake could melt on bare skin, how long a cloud of visible breath could linger in a Baltic evening. I knew only sweat droplets forming on my cupid's bow, the urgent itch from running through the wrong kind of grass. It was this lack of occasion throughout the year that rendered motion motionless. One day melted into another. It was roasting or raining. There was a lizard carcass beyond the driveway, or there was not the gumption it took to carry on the cavalier erasure of yesterday last month two years ago prompted a deep and violent indifference within me how else to proceed there was no chance to commiserate we averted our eyes stepped over fallen branches and behaved as though time wasn't passing at all And that's all I got for you, Salvesters. I hope that you enjoyed this edition of the Salve podcast. I hope to bring one every second week. We'll see how that goes. As always, you may email me to let me know what you think about what's going on. I am totally open to feedback i love to hear your thoughts. I've really been appreciating people getting engaged and communicating with me. I'm thinking about making the Salve podcast a subscriber only exclusive. So if you would like to continue listening to the Salve podcast and you have not already signed up for Salve with your email, please do so so that you will continue to receive further episodes. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend ahead.